welcome to the Female Athlete Project. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist in rugby sevens and because I have commitment issues, have also played two other sports at professional level. The last two seasons, I've played for Carlton in the AFLW and prior to that, played for the Sydney Uni Flames in the Women's National Basketball League. I'm currently training full-time with the Australian Rugby Sevens for the now Tokyo 2021 Olympics. One of my favourite things to do is to head down to the beach, grab a coffee and the paper, flick to the back page and read about sport. I've had enough of only reading stories about men's sport, so I decided to do something about it. One day, female athletes will be recognised by their achievements and not by their gender. Until then, I'm going to chat to and share the stories of epic Aussie female athletes. This episode is brought to you by Workplace Law. The team at Workplace Law are incredible supporters of Australian female athletes. If you want to find out more about their amazing work, head to workplacelaw.com.au. Swimmer Ellie Cole is a bloody legend. She's a six-time Paralympic champion, a world record holder, and an incredible role model. In 2020, Ellie featured in the amazing Netflix documentary, Rising Phoenix. At age three, Ellie's right leg was amputated above the knee after she suffered a life-threatening sarcoma cancer. Ellie is classified in the S9 category in swimming due to her amputation, a classification that also includes swimmers who have joint restrictions in one leg and those with double below knee amputations. Ellie has a wicked sense of humour. She's warm and open and, as you'll hear, has a really beautiful sense of appreciation for life. I hope you enjoy it. Ellie Cole, welcome to the Female Athlete Project. Well, thanks for coming and meeting me here. It's nice not having to go anywhere. It's <laughs> yeah. like my hometown here, so thank you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so we're at my um, my old school in Pimble, where you've been doing a bit of training recently. It's been an interesting year for a lot of people, um, including the postponement of Tokyo. So tell us a little bit about what your year has looked like. Oh, uh, it has been crazy, actually. You know, in a way, I guess it's a little bit exciting just because it's really thrown a spanner in the works and it's so different. Um, and I was actually, I was with my training partners this morning and I was at breakfast and we haven't really thought about what the other end of Tokyo is going to look like. And I just said, you know, imagine coming home from Tokyo and then sitting in your apartment and just being like, I can't believe all of that happens. Mm. Um, so that's the exciting bit, you know, being able to tell the stories about, you know, what we had to go through as athletes and how resilient that we had to be. Leading into Tokyo Games, um, you know, it's not your average Olympics or Paralympics. It's it's part of history, so that's really exciting. But uh, it's been a very hard year for everybody. Um, obviously, our plans having to completely change, but I've learned so much from this year about, you know, I guess knowing that I really want to swim and I love swimming so much because I wouldn't be going through all of this if I didn't. Yeah. Um, so that I guess I've learned a lot about myself in that way, but um, just kind of rolling with the punches and seeing how everything goes which is a different way to train and it's been it's been pretty fun whereas I know a lot of other people don't see it that way. That's good I feel like that's a good take to have on it. Um, you mentioned your training partners pretty well-known swimmers in Bronte and Kate Campbell. What was that change like for you? So it was in 2019 that you kind of made the decision to change your coaches and change who you were swimming with um, heading into the Tokyo Paralympics? Yeah, so um, I, I'd been, I guess, in para programs my whole life and mm. have really enjoyed being a Paralympic swimmer. Um, I, you know, I'd won a few Paralympic gold medals along the way and, and broken a world record, which were things that were on my, my swimming bucket list and I'd achieved everything that I kind of wanted to. And I guess swimming for me felt a little bit stagnant and I knew that I needed a really big challenge going into Tokyo. And I thought, you know, who are the, who are the best 
at the time, parasimmers that I can train with in the world. Mm. And then I realized that I had, you know, Kate and Bronte Campbell on my doorstep. And yeah. so I was like, you know, like no one's really ever done it before, but why not? Mm. Um, it's been a really difficult transition going into a program with such high caliber athletes. Mm. Um my coach likes to play a little bit of cat and mouse with us, so he'll send me off a few seconds early. And nothing makes you swim faster than being chased down the pool by the Campbell sisters. Far it's like out. it's like an adrenaline rush. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds stressful. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Um, and you know, I, I was saying to them a couple of weeks ago that regardless of what happens with Tokyo, I'm going to be so proud of myself just for putting myself out there and um, I guess not accepting the norm when it comes to training. I'm definitely going to be very proud of myself when I'm an 80-year-old lady, probably with a broken hip, just sitting back (laughs) reflecting on my life. It's been a lot of fun and, you know, training with mature athletes as well, swimmers aren't usually, you know, in their late 20s, Mm -hmm. um, has been really, really nice. And have you got anything from them in terms of their mindset and and their competitiveness in terms of the way that they attack their training and and their races? Um, uh, I think that, you know, like if I think about, the difference between the squad that I'm in now and, and a lot of other squads, it's, it's kind of just, it's, it's not that it's taking the ego out of swimming, it's just simplifying everything. You know, swimming is swimming. There's no like fanfare or fireworks when it comes to my squad, which initially I thought that there would be a lot of distractions, mm. but it's kind of just, you know, three girls that just really love to swim and we're very competitive with each other. But I don't know, it's like we almost don't even really think about the outside world. It's just get to training every day and try and be a little bit better when you walk out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all there really is to it. Mm. And um, it's been very nice. Like we have very high standards, but at the same time, it's kind of like all of the responsibility is on you. And, you know, if you don't perform well at the end of the day, 99% of it is you. Mm. And I really like that responsibility that the coach has given us. Um, it's been really nice. We haven't been like wrapped up in cotton wool or, or babied through any of it. Mm. It's a fair bit of responsibility to take on to go into a race with that level of pressure and um, I guess being an individual athlete versus being a team athlete. How do you find going into races that you, you deal with that pressure knowing you've obviously put in all the work and all the preparation? Oh, it's like pressure is such a funny thing. Um, I remember going into the London Games and I know that I'd done a heap of work going into the race so when I stood up on the blocks, I was so confident. And then I was at like a state championship for my school the year after and I was so nervous. Mm. And I was like, why am I feeling way more <laughs> nervous about this in the Paralympics? Um, yeah, and so I think, you know, just learning how to manage the pressure is one huge part of being an elite athlete. Mm. And that's one thing that I love about, I get to watch the Olympics before I go to the Paralympics. Mm-hmm. So I watched you guys win your gold medal. I actually got all my kids out of the pool. I was coaching to watch it. Oh, that's awesome. So just a little side note. <laughs> No pressure. No, but, <laughs> but um, the one thing I love about watching the Olympics is like all of the athletes there are so fit and there's not much separating them in terms of like their physicality. But then when you see them like other, you know, before their game or before their race and some of them are handling the pressure a lot better than others, you can mm. like sometimes see people just crumbling before mm. it's even begun. Mm. And I think that's the differentiating factor at the Olympics. And that's why like Olympians are so impressive because they're so sharp in their mind and their body. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, dealing with pressure and, and the mental side of sport is, uh, I think, a really important angle that athletes need to think about. It's not just your physical training. And I think that, you know, that's something that can start from a really young age and what a lot of 
um, development coaches may not not necessarily focus on. Mm. Um, but you know, if you're training for the Olympics, the end goal is that you have to be sharp in your mind as well. So yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the Paralympics, there was an incredible doco that came out uh, on Netflix in 2020, uh, Rising Phoenix. If anyone hasn't seen it, I could highly recommend it. It's probably my favorite documentary that I've ever seen. It was incredible to see the stories of so many Paralympic athletes and, and everything they've been through. And you were, were a big feature uh, in that doco. What did it feel like to even first get the call up to be part of a Netflix documentary? Well, firstly, if they made a documentary about the Sevens Girls, I think it would be my favourite. Oh, thanks. Um, well, when I got the call up for Rising Phoenix, actually, it, I didn't really understand what the concept was about. Mm. So they said, there's going to be this documentary and it's going to be about the Paralympics and Prince Harry is going to be in it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it, I guess. <laughs> Just for Prince Harry. Yeah. So um, at that stage, you know, it hadn't even been signed by Netflix, um, but I knew that the International Paralympic Committee had put a, a lot of work behind the documentary going ahead. And so I really wanted to be a part of it because obviously I've done a lot of work with the guys over um, in Germany with the International Paralympic Committee. And so I kind of just did the filming and they said that they were going to try and get it on Netflix. And I was thinking, okay. I bet you, like, I felt like they were just saying that, you know, yeah. kind of pumping up their own tires to make yeah. themselves feel a bit better. And then, um, yeah, a couple of months ago, it landed on Netflix. And I couldn't believe it. I was oh, like, yeah. well, okay, that actually happened. Yeah. Um, but the, the fascinating thing was, I think, the day after it launched, like, all of the messages I was getting from all across the world about how people didn't really know about the struggles that we went through, particularly get, to get to Rio mm. and all of the funding problems that the Paralympics had and, you know, how the London 2012 games completely changed the landscape. Like it was just a really educational documentary for people and mm. they really enjoyed it. But I actually liked watching it for the first time because there was a lot of home video in there that I'd never seen before. Mm. And so there's like a, a video in there of me a few days after I had my leg amputated from cancer and the nurse, I've never heard the audio before, but the nurse said that, um, Oh no, my mum told the nurse, Ellie just wants her foot back. And that really hit me in the heart mm. because, I don't know, I think I carry a little bit of PTSD from my cancer journey. Like I get really upset easily talking about it with people. So obviously there's something still there. Mm. But yeah, seeing that really got me. And then a few um, takes later, seeing my mum's reaction after I'd won my first gold medal, I'd never seen that before. Wow. And so it's like the whole world was watching it for the first time with me, mm. which was a strange way to watch your own home videos. <laughs> it was kind of cool. So mm. I think just seeing the positive reaction that people have had and you know, I've been trying to tell everybody for years about how amazing Paralympic athletes are and people have gotten to see that through eight or nine different Paralympic stories on Rising Phoenix. Mm. And it's like everyone's finally understanding that it's not just about the sport and you know, the athletes, they've got incredible backstories and we have a lot to learn from them as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's this incredible scene that you're in and you, are you in like a huge fish tank or something? Like yeah. it's amazing. How did that set up work? Well, I, I was actually, if we're going to be honest, a horrible day of filming. <gasps> oh no. <laughs> it looked glamorous. It did. So um, I just finished like an eight day world championships competition wow. and they took me to like some random filming studio an hour out of London and anyway, they took me into this. It was, it was a giant fish tank with windows. Um, and basically the way to shoot that scene was that they had to pull me down by my ankle with, spice, like with scuba divers. And mm. I had to hold my breath, pop my ears, and then 
like just look relaxed under the water <laughs> oh yeah easy <laughs> was, i did that for eight hours wow but, um i saw the shots after we finished filming that that afternoon and they did look amazing like yeah. how many people get to wear like, a shiny gold swimming suit and mm-hmm. just look really glamorous underwater yeah and say you know the pain was worth it yeah nice and the documentary was incredible so. yeah it was amazing so so going back to childhood you touched on it before about um when you were really young had your leg amputated from cancer and not too long after that how was it that you got involved in swimming got into the pool oh well with swimming you know a lot of people that acquire a new disability start swimming for rehabilitation and mm. it was really similar for me and I uh, I always loved the water as a kid so when um, I had my leg amputated. The doctors suggested swimming to learn how to use my body again. And I had a twin sister. So that was really great because she would jump in and I would try and chase her. And um, yeah, still love the water, even one leg or two. Mm. And it was a really great way for me to learn to use my body again. You know, l- the low impact of swimming is really great for recovering from injuries. You pr- you've probably done it yourself. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of how I started swimming. And then if you live in Australia, you I grew up on the beach, so mm. you had to learn how to swim anyway and kind of just kept going. Yeah. And then when I graduated from my learn to swim program, um, I just started squad swimming and I did, still didn't know about the Paralympics and loved swimming still and just tried to beat everybody in my squad. And I was the only kid there with one leg. I was like, you're all going down. <laughs> I don't care. You're all going down. And then I found myself on like my first Australian swim team at 14, just from like trying to beat everybody else. It's, wow. It was crazy to look, look back on actually. That's incredible. So 14 years old and, and you kind of worked your way up the ranks and um, then received a scholarship to the Australian Institute of Sport. How old were you when you first moved to Canberra to, to join that um, program? I, well, actually, I didn't move to the AIS until I finished high school. Okay. Um, so I would have been 18 or 19 but yeah. at that time. I was only 18 or 19, like I said. And so basically my life consisted of going to this place called Mooseheads on oh, Saturday Moose night. Heads. Yeah. They're very well known people, in Canberra. People, yeah. People say, you cutting it loose at the Moose this weekend. <laughs> um, and so I did, I, like looking back, I'm really happy that I got to live through those years of having a lot of fun with my um, friends. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wasted so much opportunity there for a year or two. Um, so it's like a bit of a double-edged sword. Like yeah. I did get to live a really great life, but at the same time, I did waste a lot of opportunity. But there was this almost this like one moment when I was at the AIS where a light bulb just clicked and I knew that the London Games were coming up. I think I had about a year and a half to repair by, pre- prepare by that stage. And it's like all guns going towards um, London. I did never miss a training session after that. Mm. I, only, I only drank water. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was... I was, I was Probably like a, a straight A athlete kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm really proud that I could make that transition and realize that I was wasting an opportunity mm-hmm. and turn that around. Yeah. So looking at your first Paralympics in Beijing in 2008, what was that um, experience like heading in um, to your very first Paralympics? Uh, I was 16. Do you remember anything when you were 16? Not it's, really. I, I struggle to remember things even more recently than that. It's a long time like ago. How recently? What did you have for breakfast? Turkish bread. Oh, that's not great. great. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, like, you know, a bit of toasted Turkish bread with butter and Vegemite? Ew. Oh, Vegemite. not a fan? Vegemite? No. What do you Only mean? Only lightly. I tried Marmite the other day. but um, Anyway, back to Beijing. <laughs> Long story short, I don't remember anything. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I actually do have one memory of um, nothing about the competition, but 
cycling around Beijing after the competition and finished with one of my friends, Blake Cochran, who is still on the swim team with me. Mm-hmm. And um, I was showing him that I could do like some kind of sick wheelie thing on my bike. Mm-hmm. And I ended up hitting this uh, gutter and going over my handlebars and falling into this big mud puddle trying to walk back through like the athletes village gates like the security just covered in dirty mud who knows what was in it oh gosh i'm glad that that's your one memory of the event like nuclear waste or something yeah a little bit concerning how i lost my leg (laughs) (laughs) no but that's the only memory that i have of beijing so i actually took a video camera with me to london because i knew that i don't know when you get to a games it's so overwhelming Mm. and there's so much going on that you don't really take anything in and mm. so heading into the, the London games I took a video camera and I think I took about 15 hours of video footage I like that um, idea because I knew that it's something that I never wanted to forget mm. and like memories that I would look back on in 30 years time and a video camera always helps with those mm. back then it was like a handheld camcorder on tape though back in the day I know now I can say back in the day with, <laughs> with my discman and my camcorder yes. how good <laughs> Coming back from Beijing, you talked about becoming more of a straight A athlete, getting ready for London. What was that? What kind of was able to flick the switch for you to to make that decision that you wanted to to go hard and and put everything into place so that you could perform at your best for London 2012? Uh, Well, I I had a really great competitor in Natalie Dutois from South Africa. Um, She was the Michael Phelps of Paralympic swimming. She actually went to the Beijing Olympics and the Paralympics, um, which is very rare. So she's a very good swimmer. Mm. So she represented South Africa at the Olympics as well. Um, And obviously she was going to be a hard one to beat. When I was 16, I I didn't think that I could beat her. And so I kind of went to Beijing to experience what what a Paralympics was like. Mm. I think, yeah, about two 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 years before London I realized that I had a chance of beating her mm. and it was going to be her last ever competition was London 2012 and so I knew that was going to be the, la- the last chance if I ever wanted to beat my childhood hero mm. and I think that's probably what flicked the switch like every lap that I did I would think about Natalie and like making sure that I did everything better than she would so mm. I'd be like are you gonna eat that chocolate bar would Natalie eat that chocolate bar don't eat that chocolate bar um, that is motivated. Yeah, I was like like laser focused on mm. just beating her. Mm. Um, but I think I really struggled with that. I, I did beat her in London, but I think going into the Rio games, I really struggled being like the best athlete and having people chase me. I wasn't used to that. Mm. Um, so I, I really enjoy being the underdog. And I think that's why I like training with Kate and Bronte because I'll probably actually, when I say I probably won't, I will never beat them. But I still like saying, hey, Bronte, I'm going to get you on this one. Yeah, yeah. I, there's something special about being the underdog. Yeah. Yeah. It is great. I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's just like the low expectations and like you've got so far to go ahead of you as well. Like, mm. I don't know. Yeah, and I like the idea that the other person has the pressure on them. Like it's kind of up to them to to not get it done. Whereas if you're the underdog, it's like you can just come out and do your best on the day and, and try and get it done. Yeah. Um. But I think like I learned about a lot, a lot about myself in Rio with pressure and not being the underdog anymore and mm. having all of the pressure on me. Mm. Um, so that was a really great learning curve for me too. And, you know, part of developing as an athlete in Tokyo, hopefully I'll be better at it. Yes. <laughs> um, we've, we've skipped over your success in London. Oh, um, so you have to. You, <laughs> we don't have to spend too long on it, but you had an incredible run, um, including four Paralympic golds and two silvers. That feeling of winning your first gold medal, I've heard you describe it as relief, which I found quite interesting because that's the same way that I described it after we won gold in Rio. Really? Yeah. And um, 
it was like the culmination of years. Like I was seven years old when I decided to, I wanted to win an Olympic gold medal and it was just years and years. And I just remember when, so New Zealand in our game scored after the buzzer, but we, we were far enough ahead that we still won the game. And I just remember this, this flooding feeling of relief. Like we actually did it. Mm. Like it's done. It's something that I wanted to do for so long and it's just, it's finally happened. Yeah. And you don't think it's going to be relief, do you? Mm. Like people, like you watch, you know, your heroes winning gold medals on the TV when you're a kid and it just looks like pure excitement, but I bet you they probably felt relief too. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, a little bit of a shame. It kind of just goes to show that the pressure that the athletes are under, if they're winning, you know, that that's probably going to be the pinnacle of their career and mm. they're just feeling relieved yeah. that they've yeah. done it. Mm. Um, and, you know, you're always going to be a gold medalist, which is really nice. Yeah. I loved reading this story um, where you talked about when you went to an ice skating rink not long after coming back from London and you saw... I think you saw a little girl who was skating around and she was pretty incredible at it. And you described having a moment of almost wanting to tell her that she could win an Olympic gold medal. And, and then you had the realization of, hey, I've actually won a gold medal like that happened to me. Can you tell me a little bit about, do you remember that moment? Oh, I just got goosebumps thinking about that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that was a really interesting moment for me. I think I, I'd just come back from the London games and I had two shoulder reconstructions and I actually had a, a quite a terrible time emotionally going into the London Paralympics. So by the time that I came back from the games, I had I didn't want anything to do with the sport. I didn't even want anything like any athlete friends or anything. I just mm. wanted to get out. Um, and so it, it took me a long time to be able to even think about sport again. And I just, I went to an ice skating rink at Macquarie Park in Sydney and I saw this little girl and she was so young. She was... Uh, being taught by some instructor and she was doing like flips, like twists, or not flips. Imagine doing a flip. <laughs> a flip on the ice rink. She was real good. Triple flip, triple twist, please. <laughs> Otherwise you're not good enough. No, she was doing like these amazing twists and like I can't even like stand still on mm. ice without playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was really impressed. And I remember I was just watching her for ages and mm. she looked so beautiful on the ice. And then I was like, wow, she's good enough to win an Olympic gold medal when she's older, I reckon. Not that I know any standards of ice skating. But um, I started getting really emotional because I wanted to tell her. And I started crying on the side of the rink. And my friend came over. Like, why are you crying? And I was like, she's just so beautiful. She's so good. And then I was like, I'm also really good. (laughs) (laughs) I won. Yeah, you did. (laughs) And I think it took months for that to sink in. And like, Mm. that is the moment that it sunk in for me that like I'd won a gold medal because I just felt relief for so long. And then after I felt that relief, I felt like all this trauma towards swimming. Mm. And so I never really had that moment, like standing on the podium for me, I couldn't really switch off because I had to focus on another race. And so it took like two years for me to sink in that I was a gold medalist. Wow. And it just hit me all at once. So Mm. I get a, like a lot more emotional as I get older. Yeah, yeah I feel yeah. <laughs> now for a quick halftime break. Workplace Law is a law firm focused on supporting and empowering female athletes to take control of their careers. If you can't afford an agent or would like to manage your own career, Workplace Law would love to help you. They provide female athletes with guidance through the complexities of player contracts, negotiations and sponsorship agreements, personal brand building, mentoring with on and off field careers, crisis management and work with individuals to ensure they respond to incidents and media stories in an appropriate manner, and advice and representation in disciplinary hearings and tribunals. Find out more at www.workplacelaw.com.au. Tell me a bit about the shoulder reconstructions that you had to have after London. Well, I was swimming 
at the AIS before I headed over to London and we were swimming like 60 to 80k a week which is a fair amount um and uh, you got to think of the amount of shoulder revolutions Mm. that that takes Mm -hmm. and I, I think it was about 12 months before the games I started getting really bad shoulder pain I think I had a really heavy week in the pool and the gym and then all of a sudden my shoulders started hurting and my coach at the time he was almost like he had this win at all costs mentality and so I trained through the pain for months and then mm. I was seeing the physio after every training session and she was just trying to get me through the next session. Yeah. Um, and then it got to the point I remember I couldn't wash my own hair in the shower because I couldn't lift my arms up. But then I was expected to come back and swim five or six or seven or eight kilometres that night. And then I remember I was sitting on an exercise bike and I got so hot but I couldn't take my own jacket off because I, like, I just couldn't move my arms. And I was swimming through that and I think – you know, when you're putting yourself through that much pain for four or six hours a day, it took a really bad toll on me mentally. Mm. And I just, I just wanted to get to the games. But after that, I didn't want anything to do with swimming. You know, fair enough. Um, so when I got back from the London Games, I had my shoulders looked at by a surgeon. And basically, my um, bicep tendons were all torn up. And then they were getting really tight and they were peeling the cartilage off my shoulders. And so... When I realized that I wanted to swim again a few years later, I had to, they had to get in there and stitch it all up and then staple, oh, wow. staple my labrum back onto my shoulders. And then he, he tightened my left capsule while I was in the surgery, my left shoulder capsule. But he didn't tell me he was going to do that. And I kind of mm. wish that he didn't because it took away like my backstroke ability a little right, bit. Right, okay. Like, Why did you do that? He's yeah. like, it's good for your shoulders. I was like, but it's bad for my swimming. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Um. So that was interesting. I'd, I'd be walking down the street and I'd have my arms in a sling and a prosthetic leg and people were like, what happened to you? <laughs> and they would believe me as much, I think, if I said I fell out of an aeroplane. Mm. Um, but I, I just said, oh, it's just a swimming injury. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm never swimming. I'm never <laughs> swimming. If, if that happens to me, I'm never swimming. And you had a bit of a stint at wheelchair basketball. Yes. How did that go for you and how did that come about? Well, actually, I wouldn't mind talking to you about that because – well, that, that came about through mutual friends. Um, they were wheelchair basketball players mm-hmm. and I had, I was done with swimming. Yeah. I wanted to kind of try something new. Mm. And so they invited me to this wheelchair basketball event at Narrabeen, actually. Okay. So I went and I played there for the weekend and I loved it. And then they invited me to be part of the, the Victorian basketball squad. Whoa. Which was quite funny because I'm terrible at basketball, <laughs> but I was really ultra competitive and I, I was quite strong from swimming in my mm. shoulders. So I could push a chair really quickly. Yeah. And I remember one basketball game, they put me up against this really fast wheelchair pusher. Mm. And they're like, Ellie, you have to stay on her. Do not let her get down to the other end of the court. Mm. And anyway, I'm chasing her up and down. And I got off the court and I was like, who is this chick that you put me up against? Like, I could not keep up with her. Like, mm. she is so fast. And they're like, that's Louise Savage. And I was like, you're oh. kidding. That's what I said. I said, you're kidding. You're kidding. How are you expected so to sense. keep up with her? Well, there's a couple of other things you can do. Just push her out of her chair. No, but uh, I didn't do that because she's Louise Savage. Don't yes. touch her. Yes, she is <laughs> an Australian icon. So that was really funny. Um, also, I have about a 3% shooting accuracy. But one thing that I actually struggled with, <laughs> which is what I wanted to talk to you about, I'm not really pumping myself up here was working in a team environment as mm. opposed to like a single sport. Mm. So in swimming, you're so focused on yourself and you have your face in the water. You can't even hear anything. It's like all in your mind. And then all of a sudden I went into a team sport. I had to learn about strategy. What's that? Mm. I had to learn about like court placement. What's that? Um, 
communication what's that mm, kind of thing yeah. and it just threw a whole new like 10,000 new spanner in the works for me and I remember coming off the court of my first game and being like I have a newfound respect for team sport athletes like it's unbelievable yeah it's it's pretty demanding in that sense and I think an interesting element is I know for me I find particularly when I'm playing sevens I can barely breathe like running around just dying on the field and then I've got to be able to talk and communicate to my teammates around me I think that's that's an interesting element that is a big part of it and we talk about it almost every day at training Mm. how important it is because I think that's probably the first thing to go when people start to get tired you kind of just go in your own shell a little bit but you can't in a team sport you just can't afford to do that I know it's amazing Mm. so hats off to you guys thank you um it's really hard Mm -hmm. but I I want to give it another crack after Tokyo I still got my basketball chair it's like covered in cobwebs but um I don't think I want to do it like too professionally, okay. but just learning how to play team sport and yeah. all of that. I really enjoy that aspect. It's just like a whole extra element that we swimmers don't think about. Mm, that's really cool. <laughs> um, I wanted to play you an audio clip from 2015, the world champs. So it's from the 100 meters backstroke S9. Well, no wonder she's over the moon because Ellie Cool has just smashed that time. Out of sight, 108.89. Stephanie Dixon has held the world record since way back. Oh, goodness. The, the, the existing record stands at 109.30 from Beijing. But Stephanie Dixon had held that for many years before. But Ellie Cole, Australia, has claimed a new world record in the women's 100 backstroke S9. I love the commentator's accent in that one. So in that event, you came back and you actually broke the world record. So after having double shoulder reconstruction, thinking about retiring from swimming altogether, what did that feel like to come back and achieve that? Uh, it was, um, <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, I don't even know how to explain that, like what that felt like, because I'd just come out of shoulder reconstructions, like you mentioned. And I remember right before that race, I saw my coach and he had no, like we had no expectations. We we're like, yeah, let's just get through this, you know, Rio's mm. next year. And so he said to me, just, this is his race plan. Go out in the first 50. And then if you feel really good, just come back as hard as you can, mm. you know, mm-hmm. gone to uni for four years to tell me that advice. And I was like, all right, I'll just do that. And I felt really good. And I, it was like two seconds faster than pretty much what I'd ever swum before. And I felt like I was swimming the same times as I usually did. So okay. seeing that time was a really big shock, but um, I it probably confused me more than anything because the training that I'd done leading into that competition was very different to what anybody else had ever done before. You know, I was training for rehabilitation more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I didn't have any pressure going into the race. And yeah, it just made me question everything, like what I'd been doing over the last eight years. You know, what can I do differently heading into Rio? Um, and then, yeah, that whole extra element around taking pressure off myself because mm. I, I swim so much better when I'm just enjoying myself and having fun yeah um so yeah I don't know it just makes me question everything <laughs> right. I'm still questioning it yeah. so actually I was thinking about it yesterday with the whole whole pressure thing and just enjoying yourself you know I've been to three Paralympics now and I've learned a lot of each time I've gone about you know the different elements of being an athlete and like I've won Paralympic gold medals and I've broken the world records and they're like not the things that I'm most proud about or, mm. or they're not really the things that have made me like the happiest outside of the pool. Um, all of the times where I've 
broken the world records or won gold medals, I've actually been extremely unhappy as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now going into the Tokyo Games, I'm finally at a point in my training where I'm just like so happy. I, I love swimming. Like, I love it. Wow. I can't believe I'm saying that at 28. Um, and like, I'm m- way more proud of myself and in a better place than I was back then. And it's kind of like, yeah, being happy as an athlete and as a person out- outside of the pool is way better than winning gold medals for me. Um, and so it's taken me a long time to get to that point. And I think a lot of people retire before they get to that point. But yeah, yeah. I'm really enjoying myself. That's really cool. I'm very glad that you've got to that point. Yeah. Um, looking at Tokyo, what would you define as, as success when you, when you get there? Is it the, fa- the fact that you want to enjoy yourself and, and swim PB times? What, is it, what does it look like for you? For me, I'm now training for a distance event um, mm-hmm. solely on that. And I'm actually, um, I did my first PB in five years last weekend. Wow. Yeah. That's massive. Which kind of shows that, you know, the happiness angle really yeah. works. Um, and so, like, I'm really excited over the next six to eight months to be working on, on getting that time down. Mm. Um, I think to, to swim a PB, you know, after being in the sport for like 18 years would be like, you can't really beat that. Mm. Um, and like, that's, that's the other thing with swimming. Like I could do a personal best time. How can I be disappointed at that? If it's like a silver medal or a mm. bronze medal or anything. Mm. Um, so that's like the most important thing for me is to swim a PB, but of course I want to beat everyone in the pool yes. as well. Yeah. Like I really would love to finish on a gold medal. Yeah. Um, but it's just been such a crazy ride mm-hmm. as I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. to get to Tokyo. Um, I think just standing there is going to be like quite emotional for a lot of athletes and like mm-hmm. being there is going to be quite emotional for a lot mm-hmm. of athletes. So yeah. just want to take it all in and, yeah. and swim a PB and make my family really proud. Yeah. I love that. Um, every week on the show, I have a question from a five-year-old and from my grandma. So let's do granny's question. Hi Ellie, you've overcome so many challenges. Where does your strength come from? Wow, she sounds like really confident and well-rounded. I feel like I need to speak better now. Where does my strength come from? Um, I think for me, it's mostly been about perspective Mm. throughout my whole life. I'm so, I feel so lucky that I am like the cancer that I had is really difficult cancer to treat and there was a lot of um kids and families who are in my oncology ward and you know mum and dad got to know a lot of other like couples and their kids had passed away like while we're being treated together and kind of just thinking back to that time I just feel really lucky and so like that's one part of it you know where that strength comes from is just being really grateful about being here Mm. and then I think the other part is the perspective of being around a lot of other athletes especially like female athletes yeah um as well as Paralympic athletes like in the Paralympic village Mm. um and it's you know when I was watching Rising Phoenix I was kind of like why am like why is my story even being covered because I had boring old cancer and like there's a guy here whose mum got murdered in front of him with a machete you know, you, you see like stories about the adversity that they've gone through and what they've gone through just to even be able to play sport. And, you know, females are in that category as well. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just being grateful for that too. And, yeah, I think there's just a whole bunch of gratefulness being thrown in together. Yeah. 
that I, makes sense. Yeah, I think Granny would really love that answer. Yeah, I think she's going to like that one. Yeah, interesting how you talk about the female athlete element and then the Paralympic element as well. How do you find like being part of what would be considered, I guess, those minority groups that often have to push through adversity and fight for equality all of the time? Do you do you find that that is a burden on you or is it something that you, I guess, enjoy being able to, to promote that equality and, and how incredible you are as an athlete and as a person? I think it's a bit of both. Like mm. it is a burden, but I also do really enjoy promoting it, particularly, you know, when I, how I saw Rising Phoenix was received. I really enjoyed that side mm. of it. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was listening to Lane Beachley speak last week mm. about how she pushed for um, pro women surfing yeah. and the struggles that she came across in the boardroom. Yeah. And I was listening to it and I was like, wow, that's, that's unbelievable that she had to go through all of that. But then... <laughs> In, as a comparison, you know, the Paralympics are going through that right now. So, mm. um, you know, women's sports still has a long way to go. It was, it is better than it was 10 or 15 years ago. But like Paralympic sport is almost like at the point where women's sport was 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. So it's being like part of two different minority groups there. Yeah. Um, I know that like swimming is very good with the equity of the men and women's and actually probably one of the leading sports with para and Olympic as well mm-hmm. um, with their equality there. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's exhausting having to fight for it all the time and to be told that you're not the same standard just because of who you are. Like mm. that is not a nice thing to say to anybody, particularly like you got to think of, I always think of all the young girls coming up through sport, like yeah. just having all these crazy dreams, like wanting to change the world, being mm. like presidents, prime ministers, astronauts, whatever. Mm. And then all of a sudden they're told that, no, you can't do that because you're a woman. Mm. Like, I can't believe that we still live in that age. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I know that things can change because I have seen it. I have seen the parasport, parasport side of things change really quickly. Like Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast was a great showcase for parasport um, for Australians. Mm. <laughs> it's so cute. I had heaps of young kids say they wanted to beat Paralympians when they grew up. And, like, these kids had two legs. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like. You know, seeing that it's like a generation generational shift, I mm. think. Um, but yeah, the young kids—it's just what they're exposed to. Mm. Um, they're getting exposed to women's sport, and they're getting exposed to like people who are different. Yeah, and you know, they're not questioning it at all. They're just understanding it. Like kids are sending me pictures of um, thick figures in wheelchairs now, and wow, you just got to think like if they if they are accepting that as part of like a normal society at the age of five, mm. I think it's it's surely going to get better. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved seeing, I think I saw on social media um, in 2020, you got to visit a young girl by the name of Emily, who's 10 years old. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? You went and and knocked on her door and gave her a bit of a surprise. (laughs) A COVID safe surprise. A COVID safe (laughs) surprise, of course. Yeah. um, Emily is an up and coming swimmer, Emily Pratt. She's uh, very cheeky and her her parents obviously want to give her the best opportunities that they can. And so uh, she really looks up to a lot of our Paralympic swimming athletes and Swimming Australia arranged for me to go and just surprise her at her house. Mm. It was really cute because like I'd arranged it with her parents prior and I let them know that I was coming and what time I'd be there. And so they made sure that she answered the door. And Mm. then when she did, she kind of just stood there like, what's going on? And then it all kind of just clicked that I was standing there and she got really excited and anyway, her parents were asking me all about my swimming and everything. And she was for a little while, but then she just wanted me to look at her little Minecraft world. 
<laughs> Love that. Yeah, she's like, I've got a diamond sword. I was like, I don't know what that is, but that's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so she swims in the same category as you. Yeah, um, same and, category. And she, she's talking about hoping to go to the 2024 Paralympics. Oh, thank God I'm retired then because <laughs> yeah. she's going to be good. Yeah, that's really cool. Next question from five-year-old Frida. Hey, Ellie, how many? Fake legs have you had in your life? So good. I actually had a little girl at the supermarket yesterday. She's like, what's wrong with your leg at the checkout? And mm. I said, oh, um, my leg got sick when I was little. So mm. the doctors had to take it away. Mm. And I was like, how old are you? And she's like, I'm three. And I was like, yeah, well, my doctors had to take it away. And she's like, well, they gave you a cool robot leg. And mm. I was like, oh, that's cute. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of legs, Frida, actually. So my first one was when I was three. How old's Frida? Five. Five. So it's a little bit more little than what yours would be, Frida. Um, and then I had to get a new one every year until I was about 16. So it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, and now I only get them replaced every two or three years. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do the maths on that. Oh, you get maths? <laughs> I should be. I'm going to say 600. No, <laughs> um, probably about 20. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I um, When I was younger... One, I, I had this friend and her little sister kept like snooping in a room. And mm. so I gave mine and my old legs to my friend to put under her bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the little sister went in there and looked under her bed and got the biggest fright of her life. <laughs> and she never went in there again. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how the technology has changed. Um, are there now robotics involved compared to, say, when you were three years old getting your first one? Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> when I was three, my leg had this like, pulley system so I would have to hold on to like a string it's like a puppet leg almost actually um so that was my first leg Mm. and then up until I was about 16 I was walking on basically it was basically like a door hinge style knee but I would fall over a lot Mm. um so I have a lot of scars on my hands and my knees and everything kind of cute um and then I remember when I was in high school I, I got this like new technologically advanced leg so my old ones used to be held on just with like these straps like a strap around my waist and it would basically just hang off my body Mm. and then the legs these days you like roll a silicon liner onto what's left of your leg and has like this pin at the end and then you just put the pin into your like prosthetic and like it grabs on yeah and I remember like the first day I ever got that it was so painful because it was pulling down on all of these muscles that I'd never used in my Mm. life and it was excruciating. And I remember my friends were piggybacking me from classroom to classroom because I couldn't walk. I'm used to it now, so that's good. Mm. But now, um, ever since, uh, I think, maybe 10 years ago, the US Army have started investing a lot of money into prosthetics for yeah. their, um, or anybody that really comes back from war and all of their veterans that need any kind of prosthetic. And so they've all got like computers and Bluetooth and different like I've got running mode I've got skiing mode really yeah all these different modes that's cool um and they just kind of you can just change the modes on your phone Mm. um and yeah they're all like waterproof and dustproof and they're very expensive though yeah so um it's been really great that the U.S. Army have have done all of the research behind that but they're not it's not really accessible to people like your everyday person Mm. to get one of those so i think that's probably the next step that needs to be made yeah to the australian government Mm. (laughs) yeah yeah um to make things more affordable the ndis is helping out a little bit but you know these legs are are 160 grand each and wow you know i think the ndis i think only funds well it's case by case but only about 10 to twenty thousand. so um yeah they can get really expensive Mm. 
Yeah, it's but a- they're great. Yeah, <laughs> if you can afford one. Yeah. I'm really happy that oh, I'm really lucky that I have Toyota in a sponsor and, mm. and they paid for one for me, yeah, which wow. is really nice. Yeah. Um, they didn't actually want anything in return. They just wanted me to be happier. That's incredible. Yeah. It, it sounds like Toyota do some incredible work in that space, which is amazing. They do. And they're working with a lot of like Paralympic alpine skiers and mm. creating like new chairs for them. And they're starting to get into that field. Mm-hmm. Um, they just really love sport and yeah. para sport. And obviously they're a, an Olympic and Paralympic sponsor. So yeah. they, they've really embraced that. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, what does post swimming career life look like for Ellie Cole? Oh, I don't want to ever think about that because I love swimming so much. Mm. Masters swimming? <laughs> masters, straight into masters. Um, no, well, I actually finished uni last year. And so that was really exciting to get that done. What did you do at uni? I, I did health and exercise science at mm-hmm. ACU. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, like I've got a few different avenues that I want to go down, but my biggest dream would be to open up a swim school. Oh, wow. I really want to do that. Yeah. I love working with kids. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Um, I used to actually have my own swimming squad, which is the one that I got out of the pool to watch your, your <laughs> yeah. game. Yeah. Um, and I always told my boss, like, I would do this for free, but you have to pay me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but people have always told me that I should do, you know, something as my career is what, what I would do for free. And mm-hmm. so I really want to open my own swim school because I don't really want to work for anybody else. Um, but I would really like to do a different swim school. So like one that caters for, you know, refugees that come into Australia, yep. a lot of like adult swim classes and, mm. you know, one that maybe t- caters towards like or- autistic kids or kids yep. with any kind of difference that, that there's such like so many holes to fill in that, in that space. Um, but I just think it'd be really fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds really, really cool. I, I, very much hope you get the chance to do that. I'll get you free swimming lessons if oh, you like. Oh, great. Thanks. Can you yeah. swim? I'm all right. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not close to your level. I can get by, but. Well, I'm, about- not Kate, I'm not close to Kate and Bronte's. <laughs> and I still swim with them, so okay. there's no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, final segment is a would you rather segment. The first one, we kind of touched on this, but I'm interested to know your final answer. Number one, would you rather silver in Tokyo on a personal best time? Or to win gold in a slow time? Oh, that's a hard question. (laughs) They're meant to be hard. Oh, that's actually one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked in my whole life. This is like choosing if your mum or your dad is the favourite. Yeah, that's hard. Who's your favourite, your mum or your dad? Oh, no, don't make me. (laughs) Okay, I I think I would, for Australia, win gold. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Do it for the country. I like that. Uh, Number two. It's very selfish to want to do a PB in a silver. Is it though? Well, it's, it's, it's you- your career. Like you're the one no, that's in I'd, the pool. I want to win it for Australia. Yeah, I'm nice. going to say gold. Okay, I like it. Uh, number two, would you rather to not be able to use toothpaste or moisturizer for the rest of your swimming that, career? That is easy, moisturizer. Oh. We're like scaly little disgusting fish. <laughs> I actually ac- accidentally at my best friend's house brushed my teeth with deep heat once <gasps> because she had it next to her sink and she had the label face down. And so I just grabbed my toothbrush and went boom into my mouth. And I was like, Kate, what is this? She's like, what do you mean? She came down. She's like, that's deep heat. And I was like, I know that now because my mouth <laughs> is on fire. I can feel that now. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, would you rather have 10 tiny clones of yourself or one supersized clone of yourself? How supersized are we talking? I feel like it can be as big as you like. I'm going to say, this is going to be really strange. Mm. I'm going to say really supersized if my supersized self could carry me around because I hate walking. Okay. And so just kind of carry me in the hand, be like, 
You're going to be in Sydney City in 10 minutes. <laughs> That's very convenient. <laughs> like 10 super-sized Ellie's aren't going to get me anywhere. Yeah, yeah, the, the tiny ones won't get you anywhere. Uh, we need a big one. Then think of all the tiny super-sized Chloe's that could like fold your washing. <laughs> Do <laughs> all like... the practical jobs. That could be very handy. So it depends. Would you rather like super fast travel or <laughs> I would like my washing folded. That would be nice. Now we're going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, before we finish up, where can people find you on socials? Um, Ellie Cole Swim on Instagram. Thank you so much for giving up your time to come on today. I've loved having a chat about um, what you've learned throughout your career. And I love the way that you've kind of been able to change your perspective to now be in a place where you're really enjoying your swimming and loving it and yeah I can't can't wait to watch you in Tokyo it's really exciting and um yeah hopefully get to well I'm sure if it does go ahead we'll be in a kind of a little bubble but yeah um, well I get to watch you first yes <laughs> no pressure Woo-hoo! but um can't can't wait to watch and yeah thanks so much for coming on thank you Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, would love it if you could send it on to one person who you think would get something out of it. A big thanks to my team, Bailey, Mike, Bez and Millie. I couldn't do it without you guys. Find us on Instagram at the Female Athlete Project. See you next time.